Hello fellow time travelers, we are now part of the Direction Point Podcast Network, a podcast network specifically devoted to Doctor Who podcasts including the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, the Police Box in a Junkyard Podcast, and Time Streams. You can find the Direction Point Network at directionpoint.org. Check out all of our sister podcasts and enjoy your travels. Hi. I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen. And remember, keep talking who. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to a spooky edition of the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the bloody task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. <laughs> I'm not swearing in British, by the way. By bloody, I mean actual blood, not, you know. 
whatever. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a not-at-all-bloody three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast a novice fan who has not seen these episodes and has read very few of these books, the glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Although at this point, is it really very few? I I don't know. It could be like 20-something or more. <laughs> is but, it 20? Yes, relatively, relatively. I was about to say, it can't be as many as 20 because I'd remember that, but I'd say 10, 12. I've, I've got all my notes. I could, I could look back because it started in 2017. This is true. I know. It's been ages. People have lived and died for the amount of time that we've been doing this podcast. (laughs) I know. I feel like I have anyway. Um, Hopefully we're talking about like hamsters. Like I don't want anyone to have been born and died within these few years. Well, you know, as as Archer tells us. Truly tasteless joke deleted. Oh no. Oh no. It's true. There's a Halloween thought for you. Oh god, that got really dark. Apologies. If you like what you're hearing, though I very much doubt you like that, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. That way you can pay us to say things like this. Depending on the amount you give per month, I was so overcome by that, you will receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've had to store them all on a ship in hyperspace guarded by blood-sucking stones. <laughs> just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Yes, thank you, thank you. Thank you! We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of the novelizations from Season 16, the Key to Time story arc, with Terrence Dick's novelization of a very appropriate story for Halloween, The Stones of Blood. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Stones of Blood, adapted by Terrence Sticks from the script by David Fisher that aired from 10 to 11 published by Target in March 1980. As of this recording in October of 2021, this title is currently out of print, 124 pages. You may have noticed the date that this story premiered was indeed October 28, 1978. Mm-hmm. So somebody at the BBC thought, oh, this would be a perfect Halloween story, and so it was. Well, up to a point, anyway. This is the first of four scripts from David Fisher, who died in 2018, and the first of two for this season, as he will also write the next one, The Androids of Tara. He will go on to write Creature from the Pit next season, and The Leisure Hive, which will open Tom Baker's final season. <laughs> the Leisure Hive? I, that just really sounds like the name of <laughs> some sort of adult entertainment establishment, but okay. As well it should. In fact, we'll have you back for that one because it, it's a riot. Okay. It's in Final Fantasy VII, right? <laughs> yes, honey, exactly. The Honey Bee Inn? <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> 
Exactly. He also started a story called A Gamble with Time for the next season, but due to his divorce proceedings at the time, he couldn't finish the scripts, which led to script editor Douglas Adams and producer Graham Williams rewriting it into City of Death, which is considered to be one of, if not the, best Doctor Who story of all time, and sadly his name is nowhere on it. Hmm. He does not write this novelization, nor the next, but he will novelize his latter two stories, including The Leisure Hive, and I'm told those two books are um, really something. (laughs) By the way, he hated this novelization so much, he wrote his own audio-only version, available from Audible, and read by the actress who played Vivian, Susan Engel. So when I said earlier there is no audiobook of this, I mean it. There is no audiobook of the Terrence Dix version. It's rather amazing that it took this long for the show to do anything with the many stone circles all over the British Isles, but this was a special interest of Fisher's. The name Kaliak derives from the Gaelic term for old woman which is rather appropriate, given what we find out about that so-called Celtic deity and the same name in the story. He's also interested in Arthurian legend, hence Vivian's surname Faye, and one of her previous pseudonyms being Morgana. Even the Ogri and the Megara have names that refer back to mythology in some form or fashion. A couple of things about the televised story. The Ogri were meant to be rock-skinned humanoids, who only looked like megaliths when they were stationary, but to cut costs on the designs, the director made them actual moving rocks. This cost-saving allowed for the sequence with the doomed campers, which is terrifying on screen. But it did make a mess with the mention in the script of giant footprints, since the ogre would not have left any. <laughs> the Megara were supposed to be metal orbs described in the novelization, but as there had already been one in Star Wars when Luke is training with the lightsaber, they were changed to flashing lights, which was less than successful, to be honest. The director originally also wanted Pussy Galore herself, Honor Blackman, to play Vivian, but she declined since she thought that Amelia's character had all the best material. <laughs> and she's right. Yeah. Yeah. Honored Blackman would some years later play a part in the Sixth Doctor story, Terror of the Vervoids. The director cast 76-year-old actress, theater director, writer, and novelist Beatrix Lehman as Amelia. This would be her next-to-last role in a career spanning four decades, and she is amazing in it. And speaking of actresses... Since before this story, Mary Tam had not signed a contract for a full season to play Romana, there was talk of having Romana regenerate every story and the character being played by a different actress. This rather stupid idea was averted by Tam actually signing a contract for the remainder of the season, though the idea of having multiple regenerations in one season would, well, you'll see soon enough. That, ugh, yeah, flat it didn't happen, but God. Yeah, we've already established that Time Lords have 12 regenerations, and to go through six of them in one season would have been just... Burnout. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Jenny, since you are our guest, would you be willing to do that for us? Sh- shall I include the little review as well? Sure. <laughs> okay. Chanting, hooded figures gather inside a ring of ancient stones, 
using rituals of blood sacrifice to awaken the sleeping evil of the Ogre. The Doctor and Romana go from the countryside of present-day England to a deep space cruiser trapped in hyperspace in their attempt to track down an alien criminal and unravel the mystery of the Stones of Blood. Luckily, they have the help of the faithful canine. Terence Dix is a skillful professional storyteller. He has definitely recaptured the program's popular blend of hectic menace, that's a really great phrase, and humorous self-mockery. Wow, hectic menace is like the most apt phrase I've ever read to describe <laughs> Doctor Who. That's hilarious. Anyway, there we go. Yeah, thank you. Now, I forgot that little blurb was on there, but I wonder why they decided to strategically put it on this one. I'll have to look at the books that were published around that same time to see if they do that, too. So, Jenny, what was your first impression of this when I sent it to you so long ago? Just by looking at the, the cover, I think the title is pretty cool. The Stones of Blood, that is pretty engaging. The art is pretty wild. I like this weird-looking moth feathery creature that we will come to find out is Kaliak. Is that how that's pronounced? Yep, that's correct. Okay. Do- the doctor maybe looks a little strange to me. He really reminds me of Andy Samberg here, just like <laughs> looking confused. Um, or about to say the phrase like, yeah, no, I don't know why I thought that. But um, we've seen worse covers. I-, I think that the red is a nice, menacingly hectic sort of touch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. And Dalton, what was your first impression? The title itself reminded me of the Philosopher's Stone from Full Metal Alchemist, which Tony and I just oh, wrapped up. Oh, yes. We just finished it. Yeah, so that was kind of one of the initial thoughts that I had when I when I read Stones of Blood. And and yeah, much, much like Jenny, the Doctor's face is just kind of humorous to me. It's kind of disgusted and confused. <laughs> but I really enjoy the feathered uh, Kaliak illustration there. She is totally creepy, totally like something I would not want to run into a back alley or you know be anywhere near it is is kind of unnerving and yeah and then kind of just in the the bottom left we have the little hooded figures of the the cult members the the druids that are trying to bring her back even though she's been there all along in seemingly gender-coded robes too so we know that the two characters this one's a boy and this one's a girl Um, and then yeah i'm just noticing that the doctor you can see his legs where he's been tied up to the the rock but it's just his little feet sticking out like the wicked witch of the east Um, (laughs) this is kind of a a good continuation for me for the the key to time allison will be sad that she missed this i'm sure she will be (laughs) and come to think of it jenny you have not been with us for the first two stories of the uh, key to time were you confused by all that or did the book set that up well enough for you well that's a, a good question. I, I accepted immediately that they were looking for these key pieces. That wasn't a problem. It was more Romana at first. I was like, wait, who is this companion who's treating the doctor like shit? And then I like read a little bit more and was like, oh, okay, she's another Time Lord. And okay, got it. There must be, you know, she must have, have joined up for this. Because they mentioned like, oh, he needs to focus on this mission. And then I'm like, oh, okay, got it. They are on a, a mission together. Perfect. So mm-hmm. it, it got cleared up. Right. What do you think of Romana so far? <laughs> well, at first, I I literally wrote like I'm not sure I like her. Like that she. I think it was on my. Let me go find it. My page. Yeah, that she. She's just kind of bossing him around and 
he sort of seems to shrink a little bit under her harassment. And I, for some reason, that really bothered me. I was like, I'm not used to seeing the doctor shrink to anybody. Like, who is this woman and why is she being so mean to him? But then later on, she like is nice and regular. So I'm like, does she just have some sort of beef with the doctor that I, I don't know about because I haven't read these other stories? Um, or is this like an uneven handling of a character? I Maybe you can help me out in that respect, either of you. Dalton, what would you say? I, I think that she's just being herself this is the, this is the, this is the, the romana that i've had for the past two stories and i love it i love seeing her kind of give it back to him you know she kind of is like this just graduated high school teenager i get the feel you know she just got out of the academy so oh. she she's kind of like this is her first experience in the real world or outside of gallifrey so yeah she's kind of always pushing him always kind of testing him and getting him to reassess things but of course the doctor's just gonna do what he wants to do and she too we talked about the last story she kind of comes around to his way of thinking of like well maybe it's not so bad to think outside of the box and not always go by the book i see <laughs> so she's like the new police cadet trope <laughs> yes. of like kinda, by the book and kinda. who is this guy who's just flying you know by the seat of his proverbial pants through the universe okay <laughs> yeah that would make sense yeah. right <laughs> so where do we start with this with a story that appears to be appropriate for halloween but about halfway through changes into something quite different Except the Megara remind me of the flying orb from Phantasm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they would originally have looked that way. Unfortunately, the effect of the Megara is done by just basically shooting a camera at some lights against a black background and then keying them in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not that great. And they're key to the voices of the two actors who are doing them. So there's at least that, but it's like, ugh. It really is the most low-budget effect you can imagine. <laughs> Which is a shame, because they're kind of fun. But as soon as they show up, as soon as the ship shows up, for that matter, we go from having a horror story to not a horror story. Yeah. Yeah. At least not the same kind of horror story. Finding like a prison ship where everyone is dead and it's deserted is creepy in its own way, but it's definitely not the same as the Stones of Blood, the the monoliths on the moors of England. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a really good point, Dalton. Like what they're doing is actually pretty horrifying. But when the, the way the text couches it, it's just like, oh, and they found lots of things that were mostly dead. And you're like, haha, that's funny. Dead things. Like, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't actually very scary. No, no, no. The way it's handled isn't scary. The idea is scary, but uh, Terrence Six's writing does not make it feel scary at all. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting choice. I just realized like they could have done that, but they chose not to at that point. And also on screen, they light that ship so brightly that there's just no oh. way you can be terrified by any of it. I see. Yeah, and when you have the doctor delivering lines like, well, I hope they're all dead, otherwise someone's really going to be pissed off about the delay. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> There's a lot of that sort of thing in this, that's for sure. I think that is probably my biggest problem with the story, because it actually is kind of a favorite of mine because of the horror elements. But then it does make that shift, and as soon as Vivian gets into her alien drag, which she doesn't do on the page, I notice. Mm-mm. 
on screen, they put the actress in silver makeup mm. from head to toe, essentially, and this silver caftan and put something over her hair so they don't have to make her hair silver. And, you know, it's basically, ah, alien, she's alien. <laughs> and it's like, oh, for Christ's sake. That doesn't happen on the page. And I think Terrence Sticks is right to be uh, unwilling to do that. But... Oh, where do we even start with all this? Oh. Well, the first thing that I noticed was that I kept pronouncing Ogri as Orgy, which was interesting. And <laughs> then on one of the pages, at least in my PDF like auto transcription, it does say O-R-G-I. And I was like, yes! <laughs> they transpose those, those letters. Maybe that's the collective noun. It's an orgy of Ogri. Oh, that has to be it. Oh, I really like that. Um... <laughs> I don't know. I just, just wanted to throw that out I'm there sorry. that it was very hard the entire time not to just be thinking about orgies um, while reading um, Understandable. I thought the setup, like the opening at per usual is great. We've talked before and seen how uh, accomplished Dix is at opening a story. I am in, totally in love with the character of Amelia Rumford. She's oh, the shit. I was like, what an interesting thing where because Ramana is not really a companion, the Professor Rumford character sort of fills that narrative role in this story of being the one who's sort of drawn in at random and doesn't really know what's going on, but maybe has some kind of expertise that that she can use to help. And she's still female. So I thought that that was a really interesting touch. But there's just a lot of lovely, I don't know, Englishness about this story, about the Moors and going back to Miss Vivian Fay's cabin, which has the chintz curtains and they're making the sausage sandwiches. And yes. there's that line from Rumford about canine. It's weird. He came from America. And she's like, oh, OK, like if it's from America, I can just accept that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I liked how grounded the story and the characterization suddenly came when Dix could finally write about something that he's able to know. You can't know alien worlds or e Egypt as well as you do your own backyard. And I feel I felt like I could feel that in the writing a lot. And it was just delightful. I was sort of sad that we had to actually wasn't sort of sad. I was I was pissed that we <laughs> left that and had to go up into the fucking spaceship with these stupid justice balls. I was like, oh, like we're back to more fucking corridors. Can we not? I just sometimes really get tired of running around in space corridors. But anyway. <laughs> I think probably the original writer, David Fisher, felt the same way too. That he would have been perfectly fine just doing one of those delightful, old-fashioned druids in the countryside yeah. stories that were very popular around this time. But no, we have to have the science fiction element so we can get the key to time in there. He's going to do something similar in the next story, as a matter of fact. Um, spoiler alert. Don't like, know. He's... <laughs> I don't know. Why not have the justice... I'm going to keep calling them the justice balls. Why not just have the justice balls come down to Earth and then, like, Rumford can do something very homey, like hit them with a cast iron frying pan. I don't know. Like, why not, <laughs> like, place them in some place that would be interesting and, and a funny juxtaposition? I, I don't know. Maybe her, like, Welsh terrier bites it. I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's got that really quite almost Agatha Christie yes. type feel at times, yeah. doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And if they'd stuck with the story about the druids and the stones, it probably would have remained there. I, I will say this, there is a story 
coming up where we do get one of those old-fashioned druids in the countryside thing and it also happens to have canine in it and it doesn't work Uh, it doesn't work at all and i think that's because it's a different writer doing it there are no stone circles obviously but it it just doesn't gel in the way that this story kind of half does yeah the first half of this also reminded me a lot of the demons Mm mm-hmm Just how, you know, it was really dark and spooky. We have this kind of cult that is trying to bring back the bad thing. But yeah, once once it gets to the second half and we're stuck with the ship, it's like, what? Why? Why? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the first half of the story is precisely the sort of plot that Edgar Wright in his movie Hot Fuzz is kind of making fun of. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's brilliant. But yeah, the for some reason, you'd think that in a show that's all science fiction anyway, going up to that spaceship would not be the issue that it is, but it really just shifts the story and kind of downshifts it a little bit which is unfortunate. I was thinking, I've been making a lot of impassioned arguments about stories in film lately. Uh, like, are there are there any things that, that we do like about the shift to the spaceship or reasons that if we don't like it, like ways that we thought it could have worked a little better? And you would think that I would have an answer to that, given how long I've known the story and how often I've thought about it. I'm, I'm going to let Dalton chime in on this first thing because... I just think maybe even just like the idea of the ship being in hyperspace is silly. Like if the ship would have been crash landed, if it would have been like a physically where they are, it would have it would have felt more a piece other than it literally is taking them into a whole new dimension. And, you know, they have to worry about transporting back and forth to that and that being the reason why initially with the tracer they can't find the piece to the key to time they're looking for because she obviously is on the ship at the time when they're looking for it or maybe it's like buried under the ground after thousands of years of sediment or something like yes yeah it's buried under the stone circle yeah that the ogre have come up from it or something like that that also is going to be used in a later doctor story (laughs) (laughs) And strangely enough, uh, that has Arthurian legend in it very directly. But yeah, that whole business of it being in hyperspace and the ship still being there and we're never quite sure why it's there. It's run aground on something in hyperspace. We're never getting an explanation of that. It's just there. And the thing that gets me, and this is something that I hate about this story, the idea that the Megara are, you know, justice machines, justice balls, <laughs> they are these things that were meant to take custody of uh, Cesare of Diplos when they arrived or something, but she's on the ship already. So what, they were just traveling in coach when she was in the prison part and then the ship crashed and they were stuck in there and why is it that there's no allowance for breaking the seals of the ship to let them out i yeah that whole thing just doesn't gel for me at all yeah it could just be me that i'm not personally a fan of like oh now we're gonna have a witty debate about law and (laughs) that'll be the entertainment like i'm just not quite a fan of that trope Mm -hmm. but yeah it's along with what you're saying that i 
I too maybe didn't quite buy the premise from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So then I just had to sit there and go through this exercise of like, of course, we know what's going to happen. Like the doctor is going to outwit the Megara and what's her name? Um, And everything will, will come to right. Like there was not a lot of actual suspense with that, even though he supposedly came close to execution several times. I, I didn't believe it nearly as much as I have in other stories where the doctor has gotten himself into scrapes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of our Goodreads reviewers actually said, is anyone else waiting for the story where they finally catch up to him? <laughs> because they're bound to at some point. That would be pretty I funny. I mean, really. That would be, except I'm not sure how you'd make the Megara look better in the uh, new series, because you'd actually have to have special effects for one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that whole bit that you said, Jenny, about this witty discourse on law it's even worse on screen because it allows tom baker to pull out this barrister's wig from his pocket and wear it for the whole thing and it's just kind of nutty this is definitely during the era where tom baker was given a very long leash and my god did he take it whenever there was a chance to inject comedy into the script he did so and there's plenty of comedy here i mean it's on the page but it's much more self-indulgent on screen which cuts really weirdly against the fact that the ogre are terrifying Hmm. oh my god what did you all think of this idea of um, blood-sucking stones Totally creepy, and overall, I just was kind of picturing the Elder Scrolls games, the Atronachs. There's there's a stone Atronach. That's basically what I was picturing. Yeah, the scene where they kill the campers (laughs) is terrifying. Like, what a way to go. Yes. And Terran Sticks has toned that down from what's on screen. Because on screen, the woman puts her hand against the stone. She can't take it away. Mm Mm-hmm. Her husband, or whatever it is, doesn't run away like he does on the page. He instead grabs hold of her and tries to pull her away from it. But then her hand dissolves and there's nothing but a um, (laughs) skeletal hand there. And they're both dissolved by the ogre at the same time. What's the matter? My hand! My hand! Ah! 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 It is the most, I mean, you don't see it, of course, but the the scream from it is just terrifying. It's implied. Yeah. Yeah. When the text says that they were crushed and almost unrecognizable, I just wrote, damn. (laughs) Sometimes like (laughs) these books really, I I get all the time like a whiplash because I think like, oh, you know, teenagers are going to read these and maybe that's fine. But I'm just like, holy shit, like that's a dark people, people Mm -hmm. dying, people getting crushed all over the place. Yeah. It's yeah. funny you should mention that because I guess I didn't think too much about the Ogre. Sometimes, I don't know, through my interest in trying to maybe get a handle on other parts of the story, I don't always think about the characters too much. But I guess they were impressive to me at first when it seemed like this, you know, some sort of huge mysterious force had just come smashing through that house and wrecked everything in its sight. Like that seemed like, oh, look. Let me pay attention to this. Maybe I would have liked, I don't know, a little bit more confrontation with them so that I could see them better or get a little bit more sensory description of them because I don't know that they came through to me a lot. But yeah, they, they certainly seem good at killing things. Yeah. 
And it's an interesting idea that the reason why there are blood sacrifices at this particular stone circle is because the stones themselves actually drink up the blood. Yeah, that's that's a particularly chilling aspect to the whole thing. That making them alien is pretty mm -hmm. interesting as well. But if they had been native to Earth, oh, yeah, that would have been scary. Ugh. But... They're not. Yeah, see, that was a totally, like, inherent to the story way of mixing sci-fi, like, an alien aspect with the bucolic English countryside. That, like, oh, these stones that are so familiar to us are actually aliens. I think that totally works. Yeah, and the idea that Vivian Fay herself has been around for centuries and has essentially been the entire female line of a family. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting, though I wonder if she had any children. It doesn't sound like she actually did. I don't know quite how that would have worked, but uh, especially since did anyone else get some pretty uh, maybe I'm just going from the TV story, <laughs> some pretty strong lesbian vibes from her towards Amelia or vice versa? Mm, I didn't really pick up on anything like that from the text. Not, not yeah, so much. I, I think it's just the TV story, and I think it's just me reading into it and wanting it to be there because. Well, that's yeah. That's just the thing about queer coding is you know if it would be interesting to make that the case, and if it would add something to the story, then I'm like, why not? Why not have that be the the canon that we we believe it? It didn't seem outside of the realm of possibility mm -hmm. to me, especially looking I don't know in my mind's eye at the two characters together. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds, that could have been a thing. I think it is not just that, but also the way that Susan Engel delivers the line when she says, No, Amelia, don't make me kill you. Uh, on screen, it's almost tenderly delivered. It's like, well, don't, that's very lovely, don't make then. me kill you. And you know that she would anyway, because she's killed numberless people. But uh, yeah, including, and this is something that amuses the hell out of me, Martha, High Priestess of the Cult. Yes. <laughs> which we get like three times in this text. Uh, I really like how, I can't remember where it was. Let me see if I can find it about how she's just like a school teacher who was bored and wanted like a kick. So she joined a cult. So I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I do too when yes. I was bored as a teacher is I, I joined a cult with blood sacrifices. Yeah. <laughs> that was really funny to me. Yeah, she just needed an extracurricular. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? I mean, we do this podcast, she goes off and joins a blood cult yeah. with actual blood. <laughs> I, is it implied that she's also into DeVry's? That's why she's kind of there. Yeah. 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 And uh, in fact, on screen, I had always assumed that they were married. Okay. Yeah. Because when she says, I'm not going to leave you at the very end, right. it's very much one of those moments. That's what I thought. So then I'm yeah. like, let me get this straight. You are bored. And so you just found like a hot cult member to like go and be part of his thing. Okay. Right. Martha, Martha, we need to talk. Like. It's uh, it's right here. I found it. It's whenever they're trying, they're going to um, sacrifice the doctor. It says, this man may be, may be missed. He'll have friends. They'll tell the police. Martha was close to panic. She was a local school teacher and had joined the cult because of her friendship with DeVries and because the druid rituals and sacrifices brought some color into a very dull life. But she was no criminal and she had never expected to be faced with cold-blooded murder <laughs> or to be crushed by a rock color <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. Like when I want some color, I like try a new sushi restaurant. I don't join a blood cult. Right. It's like, have you ever thought about dyeing your hair, Martha? Yeah. Uh, you don't become the high trying priestess. Trying some new underwear. Like I don't know. Got it. Right. It's like Teddy the serial killer. It's just that mismatch of the name and the profession. Yeah, that's true. It's it's if it were like somebody else, another V name, you know, we could have believed it, but not Martha. Like. <laughs> yeah, not Martha. No. Oh, Martha. Oh. Couldn't she like take up crocheting tea cozies or something? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she already does that, and that's why she's so bloody bored. <laughs> Maybe she could yeah. have like crocheted cult hoods for Devries, and like wouldn't have ever had to come over. She's just yeah. like, oh, I've got this boyfriend. He's into his cult thing. I make him his robes. Like she could have been so much more innocent. <laughs> he keeps ruining his robes with blood sacrifices. I just have to make so many robes for him. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think this is the strength of Terrence Dick's like writing where his little side characters are sometimes so beautifully drawn like so easily that you can fill in these whole histories like these whole little lives for these people in a way that's just so fun to do. Mm-hmm. Well, David Fisher has given him a lot of material to work with. Oh, good. Yeah, and when Dix gets that, he runs with it. And so it's a shame that Fisher hated this novelization so much. I've never really been able to track down why, but he was yeah. just like, I hate this. That's strange. <laughs> I I mean, there's. I'm probably with you that I, I don't think it's my favorite novelization I've ever read of, of Doctor Who, but it has not inspired hate in me. Mm-mm. No, no, it's very, it's very mid-range, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some very few changes that he makes, but I mean, like Vivian not getting into full alien drag, which I'm very appreciative of, (laughs) because it's a stupid one that happens on screen. Apart from that, it pretty much, and this is what one of our reviewers said of it, it really is one of those script-to-page jobs, Mm -hmm. because it is essentially that. Though you have to admit, when Terrence Sticks is given something silly, like uh, Chapter 9, the Megara are talking to the Doctor and Ramana, and they say, turn around. They turned around. The Megara glided up to them, hovering overhead. Do not move, warned Megara 1. They stood very still. (laughs) It's just little things like that. (laughs) There's a lot even for him to work with. But yeah, it's such an odd story in so many ways. What else did we like about it? Uh, I liked the scene where K-9 chases off the Ogre, where it says something about it being like a terrier chasing after an elephant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because yeah canine has you'll remember tony initially i was like i don't know how i'm gonna feel about this robot dog and he's really won me over (laughs) it's it's weird because yeah he he has such a personality and and really shines in his own way that he is like a full-fledged character even though he's just a robot dog (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah even his little fight with the doctor about no i've i've not always wanted yes. to be a hunting dog <laughs> yeah that was it's like you know you funny. did <laughs> even bits like the megara when they're charging vivian fay impersonating a religious personage to wit a celtic goddess for which the penalty is imprisonment for 1500 <laughs> years it's like in what law book is that a, a thing? Yeah, saying? who decided that that needed to be written and why? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the Megara probably would. What else? 
I thought there's many funny parts to this. Um, something we haven't mentioned yet was where somebody mentioned something about like being a brown owl, and Romana <laughs> yes, is like, "Oh, oh do people on this earth turn into birds?" <laughs> like. <laughs> just a nice bit of internality that i think really helpfully characterizes her she might be better than the doctor at fitting things together or sort of have contempt for how laissez-faire he is but she has no idea about like a lot of very real world things (laughs) so (laughs) i think that was a nice moment to sort of bring her down a bit right and then i also like the moment where bless her heart professor amelia rumford is like wait we gotta like capture and study these creatures while they're being like attacked by one uh she's just to its lair a wonderful like rendering of an archaeology professor i just couldn't get enough of her she when romana is like gone and fallen off the cliff and she's like oh this is getting rather exciting isn't it i'm like this this is just uh a great day for you isn't it amelia like i <laughs> just so fond of her really really wish her yeah. well her her little bicycle and yeah <laughs> yeah she's just so used to doing all her surveying measuring the distances and the angles yeah this is fun friday night i know yeah. <laughs> she would have been an amazing companion if the actress herself hadn't been so old at the time yeah that's the only thing you know there was one part that the um narration dropped is at one point she questions what globulin is and the the narration refers to mm-hmm. her as like the old lady and i'm like wait a minute like this is a professor i don't believe that she would not know what globulin <laughs> is i mean i know academics get siloed but she like talks about all kinds of things in this story and can like put together a computer this woman is smart i think she would know what globulin was and and what is this old lady business like excuse me we we referred to as professor or amelia in every other part of the script i think that one just must have gotten through the uh the editors but otherwise yeah i i agree with you i'm sad actually now that this person never became a companion because i think she'd be excellent yeah yeah the audio dramas will eventually have an older female professorial companion Mm. and she's just amazing unfortunately we won't read any books with her uh which really upsets me uh dalton you said you had something kind of silly just (laughs) um taryn sticks finding a way to bring in the marie celeste (laughs) i was wondering if you're gonna bring that up yes yet again (laughs) it's been a while since we've had a marie celeste reference what's this oh god there's a reference (laughs) to the marie celeste it's a very important historical event apparently in taryn sticks mind (laughs) yes because every single time it comes up in the Doctor's story, or doesn't, he manages to say, oh, it's deserted. Just like the Mary ah, Celeste. It's like, oh, for Christ's I sake. I see. I see. That's really funny. <laughs> yes. The famous <laughs> sailing ship that was found with no crew aboard, etc., etc., which we find out in a very early Doctor Who story that the Daleks were responsible for. <laughs> it just keeps getting brought up. <laughs> I know. And the worst part is every time he brings it up and it's from the doctor's point of view, you think, doctor, you should recall that you had something to do with that, right? Except I don't think they ever saw the name of the ship, to be honest. Wait, didn't he? Oh, wait, he did, didn't he? I thought the first doctor actually did see the name of the ship. I can't remember. Oh, God. I'll have to look it up. I know exactly what book it's in, so (laughs) at least I know where I'm looking. But yeah. (laughs) Fucking Mary Celeste again. Dear God. After all this time. (laughs) What else? When Professor Rumford pulls uh, a McCoy. I'm an archaeologist, not an engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
Yeah, she doesn't do it quite so severely on screen, but I, I caught that too. <laughs> There's also, and uh, it's because of this 24-hour horror movie festival I went to recently, um, where they showed, and this is for, I'm sure some listeners to our program will know about this, the 1992 BBC quote-unquote live thing, Ghost Watch. And the reason I bring it up is because the passage where they find the paintings for some reason, on screen, Amelia calls it a priest hole, which it probably is not. That's probably why Dick's got rid of it. I did not know that under the stairs, things like that are also referred to in the UK as glory holes. Oh. So it's called a glory hole like four or five times in this ghost watch thing. And it caused the audience to just break up every single time because what we know those glory holes to be. <laughs> anyway, I just thought I'd bring that up. Uh <laughs> you know, it's funny you should mention that. I, I don't even know why this came about, but I, I now know that that word may have been invented by the gay community in England in like the 1800s or something. What, glory hole? Yeah. Oh. Uh, difficult to like confirm, at least from the research that I was reading, but the etymology of the phrase goes back quite a way. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting, because uh, <laughs> I know that uh, a little bit more about that sort of etymology, that... It's called tea rooming here in the United States, <laughs> but it's called cottaging in British English. <laughs> and I can't even remember. I think it's the movie version of Prick Up Your Ears about the life of Joe Orton. And there's an American and a older British woman talking about this and the tendency of Joe Orton to go to bathrooms and uh, to, you know, do the whole glory hole George Michael thing. And how that was something that got a lot of people arrested in the UK in the 60s and 70s and also here. Well, how did we get into this? <laughs> Doesn't matter. All I know is that when I looked up Tea Room on Urban Dictionary, the little Google preview says a place for a form of quick sex, usually in public places such as a restroom, get a tea room rug for your mother-in-law. <laughs> Which would be great. But... <laughs> <laughs> is it like a welcome mat <laughs> uh, yeah it must be uh i learned something today thank you i i adore slang of of all i, I mean a slang is maybe the right word i i enjoy discourse community phrases of all types so thank you for that <laughs> now i know exactly and knowing is half the battle <laughs> <laughs> sorry i had to get that in there Oh, Lord. Anything else we want to say about this one? Because, um, hmm. well, that's all the positive kind of things I had to say. But actually, I don't I think we've kind of covered I, I think my the note that I made about the Megara was it's not that the Megara don't make sense. I just don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can accept that this was a decision, just as we, we said, like, we wish it could have happened in a different way or, or something. But I didn't have too many negative things about this one i i suppose part of that is it, it was a bit breezy for me maybe that is part of the issue with the megara too is that it doesn't seem like this theme of justice has anything to do with the rest of the narrative right. like it wasn't it didn't seem very unified so nothing was able to to sort of settle down into my brain very much it was like okay we're on the moors there's some big rock monsters and now we're in the spaceship okay like that's that's all i kind of got from it so it was a fast read but sometimes you wish it weren't a 
fast read. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I got through this in one night, and it wasn't just because I knew the story already. It was because there really isn't a lot to keep you. Not the way the televised version does, because there are some scenes in that that are just, like, really terrifying. Mm-hmm. But they happen to feel like they're two halves of different stories Yeah, in a very real way. One, one last thing. Yes. Uh, just Gog and Magog, the ogres. Yes. Why does the doctor give them names? Uh, no idea. I've never understood <laughs> that line on screen either. Ogre obviously comes from ogres. So it is a mythological reference. Uh, but I've never understood the whole Gog and Magog thing. I'm sure somebody can explain it to me, but I just couldn't be bothered. Probably, Allison. We miss yeah. you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just silly to me. So yeah. well, that's all. All right. <laughs> you know, sec- second last thought. I just had this brain flash. Like, what if they had had some sort of riff on the idea of justice in terms of, like, feeding the stone monsters? Like, the idea of oh sacrifice as, well, don't these creatures deserve to survive or something? Because, I don't know, we I guess we never got really clear about how they got here or why they can't go back home. Sort of a rough life, I guess, and having to pretend to be a tourist attraction all the time. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they could have done something about that, about the relativity of justice, and I don't know. Yeah, um, well, supposedly it's Cesare of Diplos, you know, Vivian Fay, who's brought them to Earth, but she lucked out that she just happened to come to a part of the world where there were stone circles, and she happened to bring three or four stone <laughs> creatures with her, right? Very well planned. Yeah. yeah. Unless every other stone circle in the UK is also made up of ogre, which, no, it doesn't work that way, does it? Yeah. It just doesn't. We tried. <laughs> yes, exactly. We did. We did. And and that's all you can say, right? I don't know. I Sometimes I have a lot of fun watching or reading things that I don't think are particularly successful because I really enjoy thinking, well, how would I fix this? Like, in what ways do I think it would work? And that can be a really fun and celebratory exercise, yes. um, not tearing something down, but really trying to give it sort of the benefit of the doubt. And we did that. So yeah. good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good for us. At some point, I'll have to listen to the David Fisher audiobook just to see if it's an improvement on this or whether it's just more of the same. Because yeah. it's not a Target book, so it doesn't really come under our remit, but it also happens to be kind of a novelization of a story. So, yeah, I don't know, though. I like these characters, you know, uh, as we've said, um, is awesome, you know, maybe becoming more of a fan of Romana. Of course, Doctor, uh, I liked from the beginning the idea of Vivian Faye. I, have any of you seen Fruits Basket? No. no. Uh, she reminds me of a character on that anime, um, Hanajima, I think. she She's very, she's kind of like this dark witchy looking girl with this long hair, very beautiful. I felt like I could see her very easily in my mind's eye, um, and I liked how suspicious she was seeming at first it was apparent from the start that you know she was in on the whole thing so i liked all the characters they just didn't always make the most of them i think this is true so shall we go to goodreads mm-hmm. all right as we always do let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings by the way if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when you get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it simply read the book write a review or comment in our goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves you may just get your review read out loud here the average rating for this book on goodreads out of five stars is 3.55 
The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives this three stars and says, There is so much wrong with this book, it would not be a surprise if I hated it, but in fact, I raced through it. Not in an attempt to get it over with, rather to find out what happened next. Considering that I already knew the story quite well, that's no mean feat. It's pretty much script page, but that works in the story's favor. Dix isn't trying to be too clever, and simplicity of his prose allows the wit of David Fisher's dialogue to shine. This is particularly noticeable in the courtroom scenes, which on screen Tom Baker treats as comedy sketches, complete with comedy prop barrister's wig. On the page, the doctor's peril should he lose his case is more noticeable. There's one error that's especially galling when Professor Rumsford mistakes the doctor for a colleague. On screen, that colleague wrote a paper about Cornish Fugus. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly underground dry stone structures from around the Iron Age, but Dix misread this line and thought that Cornish Fogus was the colleague's name. <laughs> I have close family ties to Cornwall, so perhaps it was particularly obvious to me what was said when I watched the episode. I didn't know what a Fugu was, though, until I listened to the Big Finish story The Spectre of Landon Moore in 2000, so perhaps it's not such a terrible mistake. Maybe that mistake was a big part of why Fisher hated this novelization, though he was guilty of a tautology since Fugus are, by definition, Cornish. Whatever the case, he wrote his own version. It's only available as an audiobook, so a direct comparison is a little unfair, but it seems to be much better written. Oddly, I prefer the Terrence Dix version. P.S. I'd forgotten that Professor Rumsford's first name was Amelia. It's not a very common name, so I can't help wondering if Stephen Moffat had a particular fondness for the story when he first introduced a new companion. Yeah, we'll have to ask him sometime. Travis gives it four stars and says, a fun adventure. We get to learn the truth about Stonehenge. No, we don't. Encounter <laughs> some new aliens as well as an older professor supporting character who would have made a fun companion. A good TV show that makes a good book as the monsters don't come across as clunky because a book doesn't have to worry about a special effects budget. Anybody else still waiting for somebody to do a story where those Justice Machine robots finally catch up to the Doctor? Yes, I've been waiting for about 40 years now. <laughs> Mel also gives it four stars, saying today was quite stressful. I'm sorry, Mel. So I needed something very comforting. And the novelization of Stones of Blood was perfect. Terrence Dix is not a great writer, but when he writes a Doctor Who novel, it's just like watching the episode. This is one of my favorite stories and made a quite enjoyable read. I also loved the description of Beatrix. The woman was quite old, though her back was straight, her eyes clear and alert. Her straggly hair was a snowy white, her face a mass of lines and wrinkles. It was the face of a woman of formidable character. And how, that's for sure. Who is Beatrix? Beatrix is the name of the actress who played her. Okay, so gotcha. I have a feeling that's that's where she's getting it from. I was like, I don't remember a character named Beatrix. No, Surprise. but Beatrix Lehman looks exactly like that, okay. so I see where they're getting at. Gotcha. And finally, AJ in our Goodreads group gives it three stars and says, Middle of the road dicks. <laughs> If I had a nickel for every time. Better than usual support characters, good story, a speedy read, and on to the next segment. Yes, there we go. So, out of five stars, Dalton, what would you give this? I would 
probably give this a 3.5, 3.75. I think that Terrence Dix does a good job with the characters we have. The story is pretty straightforward, but like a lot of us have said, this one was a really fun story, even though the change up to the ship in hyperspace was kind of a little off-putting or just kind of a jarring. But I think that the story itself, the book itself, was was fun and enjoyable. And the doctor was being the doctor. Romana was being herself. You know, I think everyone was handled pretty well. Amelia was wonderful. Canine was wonderful. So, yeah, not the most uh, electrifying book we've we've read. Not enough to bring some color to your doll life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to go join a cult after reading this. <laughs> Oh, but okay. yeah, it it was it was quite enjoyable. So okay, and Jenny, I think I would also go three point five, like a lot of our uh, Goodreads commenters. Which, by the way, some of those reviews are are very well written, very perceptive. So thank you all for for writing those. I three would be would be like absolutely average, but the kind of loveliness of the Amelia Rumford character and the Englishness that I. I don't know, I haven't haven't seemed to read so much of before, but I thought, oh, I really like it when we get to hang out in current day uh, England. I, I like how the writing can settle into that. That sort of makes it a bit better, but not quite good enough to get to four because the story is mostly hampered by the, for me, just kind of meh, <laughs> justice ball situation. So 3.5. <laughs> Okay, and it looks like it's going to be 3.5 across the board because I feel the same way, and for much the same reasons. Terrence Dix does bring out the best bits of David Fisher's script, no matter what David Fisher himself may have thought. And yet, he also brings out, and he can't get around it, the fact that this story is two halves of two different stories. First two episodes are straight up almost gothic horror with the Stonehenge-type stones. And then the second half is this weird kind of sci-fi spoof, which David Fisher turns out to be pretty good at, but, well, the jury's still out on that one, too. When we get to Creature from the Pit, we'll have to talk about that one. Here, yeah, it's a very mid-range book, both for Dix and a very mid-range story for David Fisher. Even though, for some reason, I adore watching this one. It's just kind of comfort food. So yeah, I'm definitely with Mel. So 3.5. Well, thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Sorry we didn't bring the spooky, but there you go. Next time, we're doing the fourth story in the Key to Time season, with Terrence Dick's novelization of David Fisher's next script, The Androids of Tara. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe. Check all your candy for razor blades. And enjoy your travels. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.